we started talking about crowning Hashem king. We spoke a lot about kingship. Remember this? And then, by divine providence, the Queen of England died. Yes. Yes, and, and, and Charles became king. So, I was thinking this is quite like... Um, I don't want to go so far to say this is why people, you know, die, but it's quite auspicious um, in terms of having like a tangible we metaphor. Now, we now have a new public holiday in Australia because she died. You have a new public what? Public holiday. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. But, but, now there's an actual king. Well, he was in the palace before, but anyway. Um, so, but it's quite interesting how a lot of, even in this modern age, a lot of the pageantry, a lot of the, you, if you're cynical, you could call it a fiction, but trying to create this sense of like the, the, the king being on this totally different plane and like graciously taking the responsibility of serving his loyal subjects by reigning over them. That's actually how they speak. What? Like, which is weird, like as an American, you know, 2022 to hear like somebody t- talk like that, but... That's what happened. So we spoke about Hashem being king. What I want to do is I want to just go over very quickly because I don't want to rehash the whole class the kind of key takeaways about the idea of a king. And then I want to move into talking about Rosh Hashanah specifically. Okay. So the idea is that the relationship of a king and, and, and the king's subjects is very different than other relationships because the king and the subject, the greater a sense of the intrinsic distance, right, that the... They, they occupy these two different spaces, if you will, and cannot occupy each other's space. There is no notion of a shared space. That creates a sense of devotion of one to the other. The devotion of the subjects is called loyalty, fealty, right? The devotion of the king, right, is the, 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 the sense of responsibility, grace, reigning. Um, and that comes specifically because the, they recognize um, the other one's place and how the other one's place is not like their place, right? That the, the king recognizes that they are above the subjects and beyond the subjects and the subjects' con- concerns, they're not in intention competition. They don't get an ego boost from them. Um, and then conversely, the, 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 the subjects have a sense that the king is, is, is not pushing them down or keeping them down, if again, this, the, the idea anyway, but rather the king inherently belongs on a higher plane, is, is above and beyond and so in that sense, there creates a sense of deep devotion, deep loyalty, deep, deep attachment. Um, and the reason why that analogy is necessary to understand the relationship with Hashem is because it's not like Hashem and a human being can really occupy the same space in the sense that we can have a shared space. Um, we're mortal, he's eternal, we are flawed, he is perfect, we are needy and dependent, he is truly independent. And we go on and on about the fundamental existential differences between the being of God and the being of a person, right? The idea that we're going to like join together in some kind of shared experience is a little bit ridiculous. But a relationship that's based on the opposite of the devotion um, to the other side of that deep divide, right? The devotion of us to Hashem or Hashem to us, that, that can be strengthened based on our, our sensing where we are relative to him, where he is relative to us. And that's the idea of relationship of a king subject. That's why we use that analogy referring to us and Hashem. Does that mean that the, that's the only model of relationship between a person and Hashem? No. But it means that's the kind of core, and then within that you can introduce other elements as well. That's what we spoke about at length last week. Sound familiar? Okay.
Now, at the end of the class, I started talking about this, that on Rosh Hashanah, so the, the eve of Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah, Erev Rosh Hashanah, the afternoon, as the sun sets, Hashem withdraws His desire to be king. And the idea is that the, our divine service on Rosh Hashanah is primarily about restoring um, an action, not just restoring, but, but bringing about a new will, a new desire on Hashem's part to be king. Um, now, I've been thinking a lot about how I want to present this, and also given the fact that we only have seven more classes to do El Tishrei stuff, or seven classes for Tishrei stuff, um, I would like things to, would like, would like you to come out with somewhat of a clear sense of things on the one hand, um, which requires um, spending time, but I also want to get through everything on the other hand. Um, you see the tension there, yes? So what I decided to do is I want to approach it this way because I think I can maybe get more bang for my buck, as they say. Um, even though when, last week when I had thought about how I was going to approach it, I just didn't realize how few classes were, I was going to actually approach it differently. So if it seems a little bit disjointed from previous class, that is, I, I rethought how I want to approach teaching this class so I can get, get through things clearer and faster than maybe I'd originally intended to, the route I originally intended to do. Okay? So I want to apologize if it seems disjointed. What I want to do is I want to take a step back and I want to talk about Hashem's relationships with three different things. Okay? Um, and everything that is not Hashem is going to fit into these three categories, okay? One of these three categories. There's going to be um, the world. That's one category. The second category is going to be um, Jewish people in the world. Okay? And the third category is going to be the essence of each and every Jew. So, just so we're clear, I have a cup of water. Which category does that go into? Well, that's part of the world. That's part of the world. There's me holding the cup of water. What's that? A Jew in the world, right? What? A, well, specifically a Jew in the world. And then... There's the essential, the essential Jewish essence of each one of us, um, and that's kind of hard to describe. Okay? Now, what I want to do before we go into Rosh Hashanah is I want to talk about what is the relationship of Hashem between, between Hashem and the world, Hashem and a Jew in the world, and Hashem and the essence of every single Jew. So we're going to start with the relationship with Hashem and the essence of every single Jew. The relationship between Hashem and the essence of every single Jew, and I'm going to give an analogy for each one, okay? The analogy is like the relationship between a parent and a child, but specifically the existential relationship. What do I mean? Regardless of how the parent and child interact, there is the fundamental truth that the child being a human being is a direct continuation, a direct product, a direct result of the humanity of their parents. Right? In other words, there's the notion of parents as people who care for us and raise us and guide us and educate us and love us and that. Right? And that is obviously different from one parent to the next. But then there is the fact that at the end of the day, you as a human being are the offspring of a other human being who came before you. This is true of all human beings except for two. Who are the two human beings who are not offsprings of other human beings? Adam and Chava. Okay. 
Chav is an interesting case study. We'll say for no time, Adam is pretty clearly, obviously not. Okay, but all other human beings since Adam and Chava, since Adam and Eve, they are human only in as much because they are the continuation of someone else's life. So there's this existential bond, okay, that has to do with the very fact that you are, not how you interact and relate to each other. What? It's that you are. So, so given that, right, you cannot disconnect from your parent on that level. Your parent cannot disconnect from you on that level, right? There is no, there is no the, the idea of the, all you can do is you can absor- acknowledge that or, or deny it, but it's, 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 it's there, okay? It's, it's, if you want to call it a force of nature or just a, 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 a fundamental truth, call it what you will, but it's that. It doesn't depend on how you feel or relate. Does that make sense? Okay. So what is Hashem's relationship with each and every Jew at the core essence of them as a Jew? It's like that, which is why we have this notion that no matter what, Hashem's connection with a Jew can never be broken. Okay. So that's one thing. Now let's move on to the opposite extreme of the world. What is Hashem's relationship with the world? Okay. Hashem's relationship with the world is a utilitarian one, meaning that Hashem sees the world as an instrument through which something can be accomplished. So this cup, I relate to this in a utilitarian way, this cup is valuable to me in as much as I can drink water from it. If I couldn't drink water from it, would it have any use for me? No, right? So it has, it's called extrinsic worth. I value it, I care about it, but only as much as it gets me something else that I actually care about. Okay? So the very question of why did God create the world is acknowledging or is based on the assumption that the value in the world is extrinsic. The world is, has to s- serve something else in God's mind in order to justify creating it and keeping it going. Does that make sense? If you were to say that, if you were to, if, if you were to ask the question, why did God create the world? What you're saying is that the world is not in of itself intrinsically important. The world needs something else to justify it. Good? Okay. Then you have a Jew in the world. What is the relationship with Hashem of a Jew in the world? And that's something that Hashem cares about. So relationship is based on care, interest, valuing. But it's an intrinsic value. So what would that be like? Um, I bought myself a bus pass. Every month I buy myself a bus pass. Why do I buy myself a bus pass? Why do I need the bus? Why do I need to be in those places? Why? Now each thing you said that is, be, is because of something else. What's a, so why do I want to be in a particular, like why do I want to come to your Shalai five days a week? Or why do I want to teach? But isn't that just restating what teaching is? Think about that. Getting a bus pass is for something else, riding the bus. Riding the bus is for something else to get to be in a place. Being in a place is for something else, to teach. But when I ask you what's the point of teaching, why do I want to teach, you just restated what teaching is in different words. Why did you do that? Right, because there's some kind of, for argument's sake, to make it simple, there's some kind of intrinsic value I see in teaching, okay? I'm not certainly doing it for the money, although it's nice to you know, have money. Um, does it make sense? There's, so why does Hashem create the world? For X, whatever the X is. Um, why did, what is, does Hashem value and care about a Jew living in the world? Yes. 
what is that? Why does Hashem care about that? What is that for? What is that in the service of? What, why does Hashem care about that? And the answer to that is, that's something Hashem has intrinsic value for. Now, the thing about intrinsic value, intrinsic value is still something that you can have and lose. So for instance, um, could it be that at some points in my life I value teaching because it's, it's just really meaningful to me and other points in my life I no longer value it? Is that possible? Yes. Okay. In other words, the idea of intrinsic value is that I care about it because I genuinely care about it. But the fact that, but my connection is because I care. If I were to stop caring, it wouldn't, I wouldn't have a necessarily connection. Now go back to the parent and the child. The parent and the child, do they have a connection regardless of whether they care about each other? Because there's this other level of reality, that existential truth, that the parents are the basis of the child, the child's continuation of the parents. So what do you see here? You see that of those connections, of those relationships, one the parent and child is absolute. It cannot be changed. Once it's in place, it cannot be altered. The other two can be altered, but there's a very big difference between them. One is a direct relationship. I care about this because this is important to me. We're just saying the same thing as I care about it because I care about it. We're just not really explaining. It's just saying I relate to this as valuable. And as long as I relate to value, it's valuable. If I stop relating to it, it's valuable, it won't be valuable. And there's other things which I relate to them as valuable because they get me to this other thing, because they're useful to me. So they have no meaning in their own right. So now, when Hashem creates the world, He creates the world for a purpose. Does anyone know what the purpose of creating the world is? Okay, I'm gonna, yes, you're right, but I want to take that idea of making home and never mention it again the rest of Tishrei in my class. And the reason is because it becomes a slogan, and a slogan is a way of shutting down our thinking. So at the end of Tishrei, you just say, and everything we learned about is what we mean by making Hashem a home. Right? You see what I'm saying? Like, like it, 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 it's, slogans are powerful when you're trying to like move people as a group. But slogans can be very dangerous when you're trying to understand something. Okay. So concretely, Hashem creates a world. For what? Just because Hashem wants there to be tables and chairs? No. So what, is, what are the tables and chairs for? For us to what? Just he wants us to sit on the tables and chairs? Ah, so Hashem created tables and chairs so that we can learn Torah. Okay, that's, that's, that's something, something concrete. In other words, the world is, to quote the very famous Chassid William Shakespeare, all the world's a stage. And we are but, but its players, meaning the world is a, is, a, is a reality in which we can play out a certain way of being. That way of being we call living as a Jew in the world or keeping Torah and mitzvahs, right? Or serving God or other such things. Okay? Can you keep Shabbos if there's no cucumbers? Now, I don't mean specifically cucumbers. I mean, if there's no plants, can you keep Shabbos? No, because part of keeping Shabbos is not picking the plants. If there's no plants don't exist, can you not pick them? No. Because not picking, I mean, actually, I would like you to not blah blah zududas. I, I, I have no idea what that is. I can't do it. Like, it's, just, it's meaningless, right? There has to be a reality in which there are cucumbers and, and tomatoes that you could but pick. People, you're just not doing it. But no, because not doing it, it means the negation of doing. Doing means it has to be something that can be done. You have to live in a reality in which that is something that can be done. 
All the negative, this is what one of the things that Chassidah says, is that all the negative prohibitions create the reality of the prohibited things. Pork exists so that you can not eat it. Right? And candles exist so you can light them Friday afternoon. Right? Um, so the world is a place in which you can serve Hashem. Now why does Hashem want you to serve? Why does Hashem want you to relate to Him in this way? And the answer to that is, Hashem finds it intrinsically meaningful. Now here's this follow-up question. Is it a necessary truth that Hashem finds it intrinsically meaningful or not? In other words, it's a necessary truth that at its core, Hashem and us have this existential bond, right? That's the bond between Hashem and the essence of every Jew. Is it also necessarily true that Hashem cares about us Jewish people in the world serving Him? And the idea, and this is what it says in Kabbalah, is that no, it's not actually necessarily true. That is something that Hashem has to choose to care about. And as long as He chooses to care about it, it's intrinsically important to Him. And if He stops choosing to care about it, it's not intrinsically important to Him. And if it's not intrinsically important to Him, does the world now have any purpose? No. Does that mean you as a Jew in your essence no longer are important to God? No. Okay, so we have to make the, at our core, we're important to Hashem because we have this kind of existential bond. But us as people in this world, right, the value Hashem sees in us is in this kind of relationship we call Torah, mitzvahs, and serving Hashem, and blah, blah, blah. And the world exists for what purpose? To enable us to do that, Okay. So I'm going to give you an analogy. Let's say you're marrying off a child. There's a reason why I'm using a child, not your own wedding. And you hire, you get a hall, you hire a band and a caterer and the whole thing, right? And then your child decides to call off the wedding. Is your child no longer your child? Do you need a hall and a caterer and a band? Do you care about the wedding? You did. You did? And let's skip to the end of the processing. Right? So now do you care? Hey, move on, right? Right? So there's your child in a specific context. They're getting married, which is intrinsically important to you. Right? But it's a kind of importance that you can, that has intrinsic value, but it's a kind of importance that could stop or start again. Right? Then there's the hall, the cater, and all that stuff. That has only extrinsic value. If they're getting married, then that has value. And then there's my child. My child, my child is important to me. That, that's just an absolute truth. So what happens on Rosh Hashanah as the sun sets? What does Hashem withdraw from? Does Hashem withdraw from the fact that He and every single Jew are bound up and united at our core essence? No. So in other words, do you stop being important to Hashem as Rosh Hashanah begins? No. Does the world stop being important when Rosh Hashanah begins? Not really, because the world was not really important in itself to begin with. What stops being important to Hashem? Him being king. What? Well, I'm avoiding the word him being king so that you can... Jews in the world. What? The Jews in the world. The Jew living in the world as a Jew, that's what stops being important. Why? That's what I want to get to. But I first have to get that's what's... Right? Now, is there a consequence now? If, if you know, <laughs> Hashem is obviously not going to relate to the world in the same way if the world 
it's only justified because of this other thing and this other thing isn't there, right? You, you're obviously, even if you signed a contract with the caterer and the band, you're not gonna be as happy or paying for it if the wedding is called off, even though you have contractual obligations as you would be paying for it if you actually were celebrating the wedding. You, you, you hire the person, you made a contract and if it gets canceled, you still have to pay a certain amount of money. Even though you're paying less money, there's a reluctance about that. Why? Because you're paying for something that you feel like you don't really need. But if you were throwing the wedding, right? You were, you were having the whole wedding, you were actually even paying more money, assuming you could afford it, it wouldn't bother you so much to pay for the band because the band is serving you. So the way Hashem relates to the world gets altered as a consequence of the fact that Hashem has no real interest in our serving Him. But it's not that His relationship with the world is directly changing, it's just a kind of a byproduct. Because you have the causality backwards. You, what you said is often said, as, as a general rule, there's many different ideas in Judaism, there's many ideas in Hasidus. But to understand this idea, to understand what Rosh Hashanah is going to do, you have to have the, the, the causality right from the Rosh Hashanah perspective, which is, it is not that Hashem created us so that we can make the world a better place. He made a world which needs to be better so that we have some way of serving Him. In other words, we are not the means and the world is the end. It's the reverse. Okay? You use a very, very simple analogy. You do not, I mean, maybe you do, but most people who are you know, running for, for exercise or something, they're not running to get to the finish line. They set a finish line to have somewhere to run to because the actual thing that they care about is the running. But you can't run nowhere, so you have to say, I'm going to run from here to there. Hashem creates a world which is broken so that we have a way of serving him. If he's not interested in us serving him, then the world loses its meaning. Hashem doesn't need to go around fixing worlds. Like he, he's fine without, there doesn't have to be a world. He doesn't need a world, he doesn't need it fixed. But if there's nothing for us to fix or to do for him, there's no way of us serving him, then, then we can't serve him. And for whatever reason, he values our service of him. He values our living so as a Jew. Right. What? Like, we're the means, not the means to end, this is not the means to end, but the means to end is Mashiach. Like, us making this world a better place for us so that we can serve Mashiach is still, there is still an end goal. Yeah, um. So, like, technically it should have started, obviously it did start like that in the beginning, but, like, even just the concept that we're in. Yeah, but let's leave Gullus out of it because that, that adds, I hear what you're saying, but like then we're, gonna like, we're getting to some, a topic which is related, which is, which is that in addition to the world the way Hashem created, there's also the fact that we've messed up the world even further and that makes a, a layer of complication which is important to talk about, but it's not critical for Shoshana necessarily. Okay, so, you know, you know if, I, if I, I get a puzzle to play with my kid, right, the puzzle is, is important only as much as it enables me to interact with my child. Right? I, don't need the, I, I don't need the puzzle. Right now, you know, so if no longer like if my if don't want to don't want to play with my child, the puzzle, I, I, you know, the puzzle is not doesn't doesn't I relate to the puzzle differently, but not because I changed my relationship with the puzzle. I just the puzzle kind of stayed the same. 
It's useful to the degree it's useful. That's it. The question is, do I currently have use for it? So on Rosh Hashanah, does Hashem's relationship with the world change? Not really. Before Rosh Hashanah, Hashem thought the world is useful if it serves a purpose. And now he thinks it's also useful if it serves a purpose. The problem is, that it doesn't serve a purpose because the thing that he cared about, which is not the world, which is our, our, our living as Jews in the world, our serving Hashem, is something that he no longer sees as valuable. And that starts when Rosh Hashanah and the sun sets and continues until we blow shofar and pray on Rosh Hashanah day. Now, does that mean though Hashem no longer has any, in, any connection to us? No. Okay, so this is where you have to have like, having these three categories is very important. Hashem is not changing his view of the world. He viewed it as instrumentally valuable, it's still instrumentally valuable. Hashem is not changing his view of us. He still has a sense that we have an intrinsic unbreakable bond, that's never changing. The question is, this way of relating, of us serving him in the world, us living lives of Torah, mitzvahs, of growth and all that, does that have any value to him? Okay. Now, what do we call that middle level? Us as mortal people serving Hashem and Hashem as an immortal God taking interest in what we're doing. That is a king-subject relationship, right? Two beings which are vastly different, have no real common ground and yet being devoted and interested to it in each other. So the question is, what does Hashem withdraw his will, his desire from? Not the world per se, not us in any sense, but the kingship, meaning that mode of relationship where we're serving him, we're doing something, he takes interest in it, we're devoted to him. So if, if Hashem were not to be crowned king on Rosh Hashanah, right? Hashem stops being king, no more king, what changes? I mean, and it just like, we canceled Rosh Hashanah. Would Hashem still think that we're infinitely important to him? Yes. Would the world um, still be the kind of place where you could serve him? Yeah. Would be there any point in serving him? No. So would the world therefore really be useful? No. Yeah, this is a crazy question, but when did we start celebrating Rosh Um... 5,782 years ago? No, yeah. But like, if it's here, we don't have like... It's mentioned, yeah. It's mentioned, but like celebrating and all these things and like... Well, that has to do with the fact that there's written Torah and oral Torah. And right. the or- okay. So, I mean, the oral Torah goes all the way back to Harsir, just like the written Torah, which is also a topic for another time. Trust me. I really like talking about that topic, but we can't do that and this at the same time. But all of the ideas in the oral Torah go all the way back to our students, just like the ideas of the written Torah. Okay. I mean, the first person who, who had this idea that Rosh Hashanah's connected to kingship was Adam. Adam, the, he was created on Rosh Hashanah, and, he, and he, 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 he said we should all go serve God and, and, make, and acknowledge him as king. Like that's, The idea of Rosh Hashanah kingship going back to goes all the way back to the first Rosh Hashanah. Is it mentioned? It is not explicitly meant. There's no verse that explicitly mentions that Rosh Hashanah is a day of kingship. There are things that if you start taking verses from Tilim and verses from Chumash and putting them together, blah, 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 you can build. But that's true about all Judaism. You know, there's there's, there's very little. There's very very little that's actually. Shavuos has nothing to do with giving the Torah. If you read read the Chumash. Yeah. there's, they're mentioned, but a lot of the things that we think of when we think of those holidays are not actually written in the Torah. Like, 
for instance, um, the whole the 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 whole idea on Pesach um, of having a seder and how that works. None of that's written in the Chumash at all. It says you have to tell the story. It says you have to eat matzah. Bits and parts of it so it's the same thing. You start putting the bits and parts together. You'll do the, you'll do the same thing. If you look at the Tanakh and you start putting the bits and parts together, you'll see it. But you have to, you have to make reference to other Pesukim and Tillim and stuff like that. The, the last, I think it's the last chapter of the Gemara Rosh Hashanah deals with a lot of these things. There's a lot of biblical commentary there. I think it's the last chapter. Okay. Um, so why would Hashem do this? This is the, thing, the the fact that it happens is one thing, but the question I want us to focus on is why he does this. Why withdraw his interest from our serving him, from our Torah, our mitzvahs, our devotion to him? Why why does Hashem just say I'm not interested in that anymore? Okay. Um, does that seem like a fair question to ask? Before I answer this question, I want to talk about something which I think is very important for the understanding of Hasidus generally. There are many things that if you understand them as consciously planned out thought, they're negative. But when they are not consciously planned out thought, they're positive. Okay? Um, in other words... If someone were to think about who you are as a person and decide that um, they would like you to feel very devoted to them and then decided that in order to make that happen, they would have tried to figure out, they would have to, they would have to figure out what you find appealing and then go act or do things that make you, them look very positive to you so that now you feel devoted. And if someone like consciously sat down for 25 minutes and thought that out as a plan and then acted on it and you discovered that, how would you feel? Call the police. What? I can't hear you. Call the police. Call the police, right? This is very disturbing, right? Why? Why is that disturbing? Well, let me set that question aside. God willing, you all get married. Do you want your husband to um, yes. desire you to actually have any interest in him? Do you want your husband to treat you in such a way that makes you want to have an interest in him? So don't you want the same thing? What's the difference? When you intentionally are aware about there's a way in which when it becomes concrete conscious thought, it, it has, and it's worth thinking about why this is, it has this element of being kind of feeling like it's manipulative and controlling in a way where if it's unconscious, it just seems like being in touch, being connected. There's a way in which making things like very explicit in your mind kind of spoils them in a certain way. Okay. Well, why do you think the opposite, that messing with someone's subconscious is... No, no, I'm talking about the, the person, not, not messing with the, the person. So, in other words, it, 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 when you get married, right, and if your husband, like, just, just, without, like, he spent a lot of time thinking about you and decided that he really wants you right. to be into... No, he just, he just, like, feels that way. And because he feels that way, he feels like he should, like, be the kind of person you like. And because he feels that way, he's, like, attentive to you. Because he's attentive to you, he does, like... If that just, like, all kind of flows like that, that's wonderful. Right? There's a way in which consciously thinking things out 
almost feels like plotting, right? And, 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 and it, 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 there's an artificialness to it. And so there's a lot of things when we talk about Hashem, we have to ask ourselves, and this is like, are we imagining in our mind as Hashem, like planning that out and plotting and scheming and scripting it out ahead of time? Because if that's how we're thinking about it, then how will that feel? Like we're being manipulated. On the other hand, we would have a sense that Hashem is more, I don't want to insult Hashem, so I'm trying to think the right word, but we'll go with this. Hashem is more primal. Hashem is more kind of just driven by a, by a, by a, by a, by a kind of like intensity within himself. Then it actually has the opposite feel to it. It feels like it's very powerful, very connecting, very enchanting, very wonderful. And I think it's just very important to be aware that a lot of times we answer things and we say, oh, Hashem did X for Y. If you think of that as like a consciously planned out type of thing, it makes Hashem seem one way. If you think of that as kind of a primal drive, it seem, makes Hashem seem entirely different. Is there, a separate, is there a difference when it comes to Hashem? There is actually. There is a level in the spiritual realms where we actually make a cutoff point. Okay? Um, so, if you look at your Kabbalah chart... Um, you'll notice there's all these different spheres, all these different like spiritual levels. Okay. You see, there's one that's called Chachma. Okay. Everything post Chachma is more like planned out. So anything that's happening in dynamics post Chachma is more like Hashem has like well, I'm going to do X for Y because that'll achieve Z and whatever, right? Everything that's pre Chachma is much more like that kind of intuitive type of a thing. And that's actually discussed in Kabbalah. So like, for instance, when Hashem is like judging a sinner and deciding whether they should be punished or pardoned, what level is that going to be happening on? So if someone's a sinner and God says, should they punish them or forgive them? What? That's, that's going to be some issue with Kavura and Chesed. And, you know, so that's all post-Chachma stuff, right? So Hashem is sitting there and thinking, what's important? What's appropriate? What's the best way to deal with this, right? Okay. Which is kind of how you think a judge should be about things, right? But we're now talking about something much deeper. We're talking about what's... So the idea of Hashem's interest, Hashem's care and things, that would correspond to the sphere of Keser. So we're talking about a level where Hashem is not like sitting there plotting and thinking. Right? It doesn't have that feel. Okay, so even I'm going to explain to you he does this for this reason, you have to kind of think about it on that kind of deeper level of a person. Like if we were to start interrogating the deep drives inside of you, right? It's not like you're thinking those through rationally, but there is a way of explaining what's driving you and what it's, you're aiming for and what caused you to be that way. Okay? So I'm just going to give you a concrete example. Um, why do teenagers fight with their parents? think their parents are right and they, no, they, they, they think they're right. <laughs> Freudian slip, sorry. Yeah. Parent of a teenager. <laughs> um, they think that they're right and their parents are wrong. Well that's actually quite interesting because that would mean that parent that, that would mean that either parents are, are really, really wrong a lot in the lives of teenagers. There's a friction of like one or or there's something that is motivating the parent, the child the teenager to think that the parent is uniquely wrong. Because the thing is like this, teenage, like I have a son who's a teenager. Now granted, he's a young teenager, he's still a teenager. And it's very interesting that like if I don't say certain things, he hears it from someone else, they're all of a sudden sound very reasonable and intelligent. But God forbid it should be his father's opinion, it must be wrong. I don't think it's because I'm wrong. I mean, I'm wrong about certain things, but I think it's a lot more to do with, right. 
something to do with authority, power, autonomy, right? Something. What? No, but, the, but, but you can actually start going back and reducing it. It, it. A lot of it comes down to certain basic things, which is like this. Before, when you're a child, you don't have your own identity. Um, and that means that, that in as much as, a, a, as a, you have your own desires, you want things, you want, you, know, you want to go to the park and your parents say no. But your sense of yourself is an adjunct to your parents. Like, who has a life? Who has a home? Who has your parents? And you are part of that, right? Now, if you're an adult, that's just not true, right? So what's happening when you're being, being a teenager? You're separating and trying to develop your own sense of identity, right? So this is why issues like, well, it's very interesting because like people, oh, teenagers want independence. Well, that's not true. It's very interesting how, how like once it comes to a peer group, like all the desire for independence can desire disappear completely because it's not so independence as like an abstract value. It's specifically independence from who? Your parents. Your parents because I need to have my, my identity not just leaving the adjunct of my parents. Now, if, if my identity is I'm part of this group and don't think for myself because I'm part of this group, that's still not my parents, right? And a lot of things stem from that, right? Now, but at the same time, um, does the, do, do, do adults still need the security of knowing that they have family and heritage, people that care for them, people's life experience they can draw on and will support them, right? As, as like fully grown adults, yeah. So as a teenager, you certainly need to have those things, right? So the teenager has this need to pull away and be independent, but they also have simultaneously a need not to completely cut themselves off. And does that create a lot of interesting drives and motivations in the life of a teenager? Okay. So does that mean at every single moment when the teenager slams the door and tells the parents, they'll get involved, it's none of your business, I don't need, I don't need you getting involved, that means the parent, the child, the, the teenager's thought, I really need to figure out how to assert my own independence and my own ability to see myself as a unique yeah. human being. And in order to do that, I need the space to make my own mistakes without my parents imposing their values. And I think the best way to give me that kind of breathing room is if I like very aggressively shut my parents out, that will enable me to, in a, in a very constructive, like that's not what's happening, right? They haven't Plan that out. Maybe they should have, but they didn't, right? See what I'm saying? Like, like there's, there is clearly a way of making sense of it, but it is not coming from a rational forethought of, right? And that's because it's dealing with these deeper drives, these more primal, in, you know, vital senses in the person. In a similar sense, in Chassidus, we speak about which kind of things are more analogous to the deeper drive and which things are more analogous to Hashem thinking and planning things out. If we're talking about whether Hashem fundamentally cares about our service of Him, about our Judaism, we're talking about operating on that deeper level. So even though I'm going to explain to you why He withdraws His care and resumes His care, should we think of it as like a planned out thing in advance on Hashem's part? No. We should think of something that occurs and knowing it occurs, you can make sense of it. It's really hard to imagine that Hashem doesn't like naturally just always have that plotted out. I know. Do you know Even why that is? Coming from a place of a primal drive, you can't imagine myself is not fully aware and conscious of everything you do. Do you know why? Because, because we project. No, because we project onto Hashem. We have a very hard time projecting onto. We have a very hard time seeing Hashem as less than what we would consider to be perfect in a human being. But I feel like in humans, it's a lot easier to imagine people doing things. That's right, because we can accept that human because we can accept that human beings don't know things or aren't aware of things. 
because we can accept that human beings are flawed and we always conceptualize not knowing and not being aware as a negative thing. What this actually indicates and challenges is that awareness is not always positive. And this is actually one of the places where Kabbalah says some very radical things. The deepest levels of godliness in Kabbalah is called um, the head which does not know and is not known. Meaning what? Knowing, being aware is a kind of disconnect. If you want to think about it like this, I'll just give you a very simple analogy where you can see this. Have you ever watched a really good movie? Shame on you. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> it's a religious thing. Um, now, if you are sitting there watching a good movie and you are aware, I am watching this amazing movie. I'm in fact 35 minutes into this amazing movie, which was so skillfully produced. Does that enhance the quality of the experience or detract from it? What? For me, enhances. That you're aware of how many minutes have gone by? Like, I'll just appreciate it. I'll be like, whoa, that's insane. Okay, well, you're very unique. For most people, for most people, being, being aware that you are doing it actually pulls you out of it. Okay? Um, what? I said it was a really good movie. Right. The, 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 there's awareness, and this is awareness... Like, we're very comfortable with the idea that Hashem doesn't, like, have fingers, physical fingers, right? Because, you know, like, fingers you just need in order to move stuff around, but if Hashem just moves stuff down at will, he doesn't need fingers, right? Like, I need fingers to pick up the cup, but if Hashem could just move the cup by will, he doesn't need fingers. But when we start, when we have a hard time seeing something as, as a negative, and we only see it as a positive, we have a hard time seeing that Hashem is not, doesn't have to have that. So part of it has to come to realize that not everything in our experience is awareness have a positive quality. And so maybe Hashem has the positive elements of lack of awareness without the negative elements of it. And that just challenges us that maybe Hashem is really not a person, not like a person. But going back to this discussion, if you think of Hashem plotting this out in advance, it's going to make it sound very manipulative and that's not really what it's supposed to sound like. It's supposed to sound like the opposite. It's supposed to sound like very meaningful and deep and intense. Okay, okay. now... Here is, I'm going to give you the, the following um, physical analogy. If you have a sprig and you pull the sprig very, 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 very far, what happens if you let go? You have a spring, I pull it. It goes back. It goes all the way back, right? Why? Why does that happen? Physics. Physics. Woo! Like, really, why does it happen, yeah? What? There's a, there's, there's a reason. Physics does quantify that. What, what's three? Right. Because, because, because what you're doing is you are, when you're pulling the spring, right? It takes energy to pull that spring, right? You're exerting energy to pull that spring further and further. Where does that energy that you're going, because energy is never created or destroyed, that energy goes into the spring as potential energy to move back in the other direction as long as, and then once it's released that potential energy then gets released as then it moves back and it hits something and makes a noise energy has to keep going somewhere so because there's energy in holding the spring here that energy gets released in pulling it back when you deeply care about something and I'm talking about a person a similar thing is happening when you deeply care about something that actually is an investment of your of, of energy and, and like the spring, if the, you're pulling the spring, right? The more I'm into something, the more that thing has to kind of hold me there. What happens if that thing doesn't hold me completely? 
Well, the interesting thing is, if I wasn't so invested to begin with, it's not a big deal. But if I was really deeply invested and no longer holds me, then what happens? Pull back. So I'll give you an example. Let's imagine you have a job which pays like a halfway decent salary that you need, you know, and the job is like not too interesting, not too boring. It's just whatever, you show up, you do your work, you get paid and you can, I don't know, help pay off, you know, some of your expenses while you're going to graduate school or something. That kind of a job, yeah? Okay. And now let's imagine, conversely, as another example, that you're married. Okay? And you've invested, you know, time, like 10, 15, 20 years in this marriage and raised a family together, okay? And now, in both scenarios, let's say the boss fires you or your, or your husband says, I'm out, divorce. Which one do you like casually walk away from and move on in life? And which one do you have huge backlash from? Well, what? was a huge thing, right? right? Why? Because you had a lot of experiences and you gave a lot of your emotional... Right, you gave a lot of yourself into it. On the other hand, that other thing, there's a technical problem. You need to pay your bills, right? So like there's a technical issue, but if you're not weren't that invested, you were showing up, getting a paycheck, doing some work that wasn't that interesting, it wasn't that demeaning, right? As long as you can just go find something else to pay the bills, it's not a big deal. So there's the, 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 the energy of pulling away is directly proportional to how much of yourself you invested into it. Does that make sense? Like a spring. It, okay, so now. With a person, once you do that pulling out thing, what can happen? Like. Once you like you were really invested in something and now it doesn't hold you now it fall apart, fell apart and so you you know, it's not you just you just withdraw you pull you pull all the way back you pull all the way back well what happens in those those situations is that um, a person actually gets in touch with a deeper part of themselves than they knew to begin with kind of like the spring right when you pull the spring here it doesn't just come back to where you pulled it from it actually goes further the other way right. So let's like use the example of a divorce. A person really invests in divorce, they often have to become more in touch with themselves, more, you know, figure out really which friendships, which relationships, all things really matter. They become, there's a sense of clarifying the, the depths of the person that come in those kinds of backlashes. Does that make sense? Okay. If now after that backlash, you reinvest yourself into anything, are you coming from a deeper place or the place you were before? Now that you've gone, now that you've discovered that deeper part of yourself, deeper. So there's an interesting dynamic here. If I invest myself and then that fails to hold me and I, and I, and I withdraw, it's not like a casual pulling out. It's like, Phew. but now I get to a deeper part of myself. I get to a deeper part of myself. If I then see value in something, I'm, that, I'm connecting to it on a deeper level, right? If then I, that gets released, what happens? I go to a deeper part of myself. If you look at this as a long-term thing, what ends up happening to your overall relationships? They become... Deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, specifically because of that backlash effect. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, would anybody like turn to their wife or husband of 25 years and say, I think we should get divorced, so we have to go through like this deep, 
soul-searching thing. And then after that, we'll get remarried, and so we'll have a deeper relationship. Does that sound like something you should plan out ahead of time? No. It does not, right? In fact, if you planned that out ahead of time, would it be effective? What? No. However, it's an interesting dynamic. You don't actually have to get divorced. An interesting dynamic is that if you have a close relationship, it could be spouses, it could be, it could be friends, where you're really investing. What ends up happening is you invest, you invest, you invest into a point where the other person just can't hold you anymore. In other words, you're invested in a way that makes demands upon the person that they're just not capable of living up to. And when that happens, how do you feel? Rejected, withdraw, and now what happens at that point in like a normal deep relationship? You process, whatever processing is, right? You deal with yourself, you deepen your sense of yourself, and then what happens? Because you still care about this, you come to the sense you still wanna have this relationship, so what happens? You reinvest, and if you repeat this process over time, what happens to these relationships? They deepen. It's like physical exercise, you make micro tears in the muscle and then the muscle gets stronger. Right? Although you don't usually think that's what you're doing, but that's what you're doing. So Hashem created this amazing thing that close friends and spouses and adult parents and children, they fight, they disagree. They feel elements of the other person has not lived up to what I invest in expectations. That's not a bug, that's a feature. Because what does that allow to happen? You deepen the relationship by, by feeling like you like, I, I, and you go back and you process, you come from a deeper place and you reconnect. And through that, what happens? You have deeper and deeper and deeper relationship. If you didn't have that, what would happen is that the relationship stays on whatever level of depth it was to begin with. So why would Hashem pull out of his interest in our relationship as his, uh, him being our king and us being his subject, our relationship of us serving him in this world and bringing about uh, you know, all this important stuff and him being interested in that. And why, would he, why, would he, why would he do that? Well, if my service of Hashem is not good enough to the point that Hashem, so to speak, says, well, that's it, I'm out. If he comes back after that process, is he coming back from the same place or from a deeper place? And if we're going to come back to him after that, are we going to be coming back from the same place or from a deeper place? And so the whole idea is that it's not withdrawal because Hashem's like playing games like, well, I don't really know. You're going to have to convince me. Like, that's silly. It's, or, it's kind of this organic, uh, the intensity of trying to connect creates its own breakdown that serves then as the basis to connect in a deeper way. Onwards and onwards and onwards and onwards. So it's not, in other words, there's a, there's a cycle to it. In fact, that's when the Hebrew word for year, Shana, means a cycle. There's a cycle of Hashem investing himself in being our king, us investing us in being his subjects, right? And then that falling apart, right? Generally speaking, we don't live up to what we should really be from his point of view, and he withdraws, and then we have to deal with that rejection, and then we recommit to him, and then he recommits to us. But now we're recommitting from where? from a deeper place because we had that backlash. And so the entire thing is not, you know, meant to be like, well, you're going to have to convince me to want to be interested in you. And if you can't, well, then it's all over, right? A healthy relationship goes through these breakdowns and rebuild it. Like, how do I know, how do I know for sure it's going to work? How do I know for sure at the end Hashem is going to recommit to us and we'll recommit to him? 
Right, because at the essential level, it's, it, there is a basis for our connections. We're essentially one, and therefore there's always a basis for us to try to reconnect. And so if we, if we withdrew, if we disconnected and withdrew to a deeper part, that just means there's a more depth to reinvest afterwards. Okay? And so it's not like Hashem has this all planned out in some kind of maniacal, manipulative way. It's, 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 it, 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 it's, it's fluid. And the more you think about it like this in any, again, the king-subject relationship is, is maybe not true about most relationships are very different in that regard. But any relationship between two people is gonna have this kind of Rosh Hashanah-like thing, not about king, but whatever it is. So let's say teacher and a student, right? The teacher and student is about the student being, wanting to imbibe the wisdom, the knowledge of the teacher, and the teacher wanting to raise up the student to actually have this truth and to live in accordance with that, okay? It's not the same thing as a king and a subject, it's a certain kind of relationship. What happens if this teacher is so deeply invested in the student and the student just doesn't live up to that? At a certain point, what happens? How does the teacher feel? Disappointed, right? In that rejection, the student teacher withdraws. And now what happens if the student realizes that the teacher is withdrawn? The student feels rejection, right? Now, if at that point, they both come to the recognition that this relationship is important and so they reinvest. Are they re- they're reinvesting in a deeper way, right? And in a healthy relationship, that will happen in a regular cycle. And that allows for deepening and for cleansing and for healing. It's an, it, otherwise, some, in those, if a relationship actually doesn't do that, that tells you that there's, people have kind of made peace with a level of disinterest with each other. If there's no breakdown, then it means that there was, that the means the investment was shallow to, the, the risk has become, was or has become shallow to be, and therefore there's nothing to break, there's nothing to pull back. It's like if you hold the spring, you pull a little bit, it doesn't flip all the way back to the other side. It just, you let go and it kind of stays there. Is there a possibility of strengthening the essential level? No, because the essential level doesn't need to be strengthened, it can't be weakened, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's just, it's a fact, that's the way it is. But it serves as no matter how far away you pull away, there's some basis for coming back. Okay. But then you said how if there's no breakdown in the shallow, but that's, that's... Well, no, there's no breakdown in, a relation, in, 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 terms of the, in terms of when you're talking about relating to others. But, but the essential level is not relating. It's just the fact. The fact is that no matter what, there is a basis for connection. So it's, it's, it's a different kind of thing. No matter what, my mother is my mother. Okay. But in a relationship with a person, and also in a relationship, if there's no breakdown in how you feel towards how invested you are, that means on some level there was not, the investment was kind of shallow to begin with. Okay. Can I, I'm going to tell you something which is like tangential, but I think highlights this in an interesting kind of way. There was a, 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 a I mean, he's still alive, I think. Yeah, he's still alive. There's a, there's a, a chassid who's also a shliach, he's also a professor. His name is Tali Lowenthal. He's in England. He's a professor of Hasidus. I think he's retired now. Um, so one time he wrote an academic article about why the, the Hasidic practice of long meditative prayer is not as common in modern societies as it was in traditional societies. So you go back to like the shtetl, you know, the villages in Eastern Europe was a more common practice and now in modern life it's less common. So he did an academic article about why that changed. 
And so one of the ways he did his research was he went around to people who actually still engage in this long meditative prayer and asked them what their opinion was. As a practitioner of this, where do you see the conflict between modern life and this spiritual practice? And one of the responses was is that people no longer have friendships. They have careers. Now, what did this person mean that people don't have friendships, they have careers? I mean, it's not true. Do people no longer have friendships? I, mean, I think people have friends, right? And what do you mean people didn't used to have careers? Like, like, like he was trying to get at something deeper. So, I have to pay the bills, right? How am I going to pay the bills? Money's not going to just come down from heaven, right? Someone has to give me the money. Why are they going to give me the money? I'm going to do something for them, right? Okay. If that's how I relate to things, I have no career. I have no career. I have a family. My family needs money. No one's giving me the money for free. So I have to do something that other people are going to want to give me money for. I don't have a career. Does it matter if what I'm doing is, being, is healing people in a hospital or, or helping people with their legal problems or plowing a field? It doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, I'm just doing something so that other people give me money so that I can support my family, right? Such a person has no career. Even if they're really good at something, they've been doing it for 40, 50 years. That makes sense? Okay. What do you want to be when you grow up? You have a career. Maybe you don't actually have one yet. I don't know, but you have a career. Why? What's, what, what, what's the difference? It's like driven by more of a thing more than just That's right. It's, there's a sense of who I am, what my life is about. Right? In other words, how much... In that first thing is that, person's, is that person's will, that person's vital energy invested in what they're doing for the other person. Really just a minimal. What do I need to do so that the good or service is sufficient to get the money so I can support my family? That's it. I don't have no further investment in that. And so like you move from one thing to the next. If the same thing works, you keep with that thing. But what you describe being a writer is there's a sense of... of purpose of life, fulfillment, of identity, and so there's a very deep investment of self, right? And so, you know, after 30 years, maybe you like have a crisis, do I really want to be a writer? It's like, is that my true identity? Is that my true calling in life, right? But the guy is plowing fields just to put food on the table. It's not a question. Like, you know, why am I plowing fields? Because that seems to be the best way to do it. Like, if, if I can get the food on the table without, you know, in a faster, more easier way, I guess I'll do that. But, like, it, you know, it doesn't seem like it. So I'll plow the field. Like, it's, where's the crisis? Now, let's go. Okay. People, it says, nowadays don't have friends. And I don't, I don't want to say that nobody has any friends. But let's think about this. What... What would be a good criteria for a friendship that this person may be met? So it's very interesting. In the Chumash, there's only one person described as a friend. Did you know that? The Chumash has lots of relationships. Only one person is described as being someone's friend. Does anyone know the story? Chumash or Tanakh? Tanakh, there's a few friends. But in Chumash, there's only one. So one of... Yaakov's son's name was Yehuda. Yehuda had a friend, one of the natives of the land. He's called the Adulamite. And, how do, and it says he was his friend. Now, it's very interesting. Um, how do we know that Yehuda and him were friends on the fact that it says what? 
So Yehuda engaged in what we say is very not appropriate behavior with another woman. And he confided in who? His friend. And he had to then deal with the consequences of that. And who did he ask for help? So what does that tell us a friend is? Somebody that you can be very open and vulnerable with about the things that are... Right? This is something he didn't, wasn't comfortable with his family to know, and, but he... Now, if you pay somebody, that's different. You have a therapist, right? You pay them and you're open with them, right? But that, that's not, we're talking about, that, that's a service. That's not a relationship. And I'm not saying that therapy is bad. I'm just saying it's a different thing. There's a person that freely, you engage in a relationship where what? You are comfortable showing them the ugly sides of yourself and asking for their help. Now, is that a common feature in modern life? Or we live very atomized, you know, service lives. Like I live, do my thing, you do your thing. If you can, you know, and then like, it just doesn't, the modern life doesn't, doesn't have that same thing. I mean, you can ask why that is. The, the previous service speaks about how the fact that we move around a lot. It's also the question of living in cities. I mean, there's a lot of things about modern life. I'm not saying it's all bad, but it does have that thing. So that means we tend to, as modern people, be a lot more invested in our sense of who we are, the film we get by the social role we play than the actual specific relationship with this person or that person. Okay? Now, if you like add the idea that you can just defriend someone with a button, that just makes the whole thing worse. Okay? And so, you know, my, 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 my children, they ask me like, is so-and-so my friend? And it's very hard to answer that question to a little child because a little child, what does it mean a friend? Right. Everybody that is your age in your school or in the show or whatever, as long as you're not having an actual ongoing fight with them, is your friend. But that's not what a friend is. Like, like, it's like I know him. Like, you know, if I bump into him and she'll say hello, she moves for half a minute. But like, you know, I have a, I have a few friends. I have a friend. I saw a friend. He, I, I said, I, I want to make some time to talk. Like this week, I'm just upset. We'll make time to talk. We're gonna like well, we'll go for a walk for like two, three hours, like to talk about life issues and stuff, right? I'm not paying him as my therapist. Not paying me as a therapist. The guy I meet in Shul, I'll have a friendly, you know, five, five, ten minute conversation. Not my friend, right? It was an acquaintance. When you see what I'm saying? So this investment. But here's the thing: when you're invested in that kind of thing, what happens in all relationships? As you're invested, you run into any as you you, you push, stretch the string. There's the pullback. But that's not a negative thing because that pullback allows you to what? To reinvest in a deeper and deeper way. This friend that I, well, we're going to hopefully, you know, this week or next week, go out and just have, walk around and talk for... We've had our fights. We've had our disagreements. Some of them quite intense. It's, again, it's not... You have to just know how to navigate it. Okay? It's not a pleasant thing to go through. It can be an overwhelming thing to go through. Nobody wants to stand in front of Hashem and feel like Hashem is like, you know, I, I, I pulled back. I'm not so sure. I don't know this whole Judaism Torah Mitzvah thing. But it's not that he's holding that over our heads and saying like, it's manipulative. It's a, it's a natural process of what it means to be invested in something. If you're invested in a career, like I said, you'll have the same thing. People invested their sense of having a career. They go through a crisis at a certain point. Is this really who I am? Is this really who I want to be? And whatever they reinvest in life afterwards, if it's the same thing or a different thing, is going to come from a deeper place. So the whole pulling away and, so to speak, disinterest that Russian is about is not 
it's a natural and, and, and positive part of a relationship re- renewing itself and deepening itself. And if we relate to that as such, right? Throughout the year, we have, you know, the demands of, of Hashem has placed on us seem to be too much and we pull out and we disregard it. And then Rosh Hashanah's going, are we going to come back? And we want to, we want to, we realize this is important. We want to invest from a deeper place. And so the, the prayers on Rosh Hashanah of asking Hashem to be our king, of accepting Hashem as our king, of sounding out the shofar, the pain of not wanting to live with that disconnect, it's, a, it's not a pleasant thing to go through, but it is a positive thing to go through. Because it shows that there's a real living energy on both our part and Hashem's part. Right? And you see what I mean? It's very important that we don't think this is like a pl- thing that's planned out in advance, plotting out. I mean, now I'm going to pull away. It has to be, it, it, it has to be organic. It has to flow because of the devotion, of the interest, and of the concern. And the thing is, and this is something that speaks about us, we have to have the confidence that if it's an, if, if it really, this is how it works, there is that deep existential bond that we have with Hashem, then He is going to ultimately reinvest. And we are ultimately going to reconnect. And then afterwards, you have to deal with, the, you know, the consequence of that and build, and build from that place, which is going to be talked about next about the 10 days of truth and things like that. So the trepidation on Rosh Hashanah, primarily from the perspective of Chassidus, is facing this truth. That relationship is not just like smooth sailing. It's pulling that spring and really investing, and then flying back, and then pulling out from a deeper place and then flying back. And the flying back is, is, is deeply troubling and deeply unsettling, even though it is a positive development. I think I mentioned before that the Rebbe's wife said there's only one thing the Rebbe is afraid of, which is Rosh Hashanah, did I mention that? The Rebbe was afraid of Rosh Hashanah. Why was the Rebbe afraid of Rosh Hashanah? He was afraid maybe Hashem in the end will say no. Can you be afraid of something even though you know how it's going to come out because you're afraid of the, the, the intensity of the experience, the overwhelmingness, the discomfort of the experience, even though you know it's going to work out well in the end, is that possible? Yeah. Right. There's a lot of things in life that, that are like that. You know, if you have a good marriage or a good friendship, are you going to have serious conflicts? Are they pleasant to go through? Do you not want to go through them? The thought that one might be looming can be overwhelming. Even though you know that you and your spouse or you and your friend have the deep down the commitment and the dedication and the maturity to work through it and you will work through it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it maybe gives you the confidence to go through it, but it doesn't make it all of a sudden like, you know, a happy, pleasant experience. And so there's this kind of tension, Rosh Hashanah, the, the optimism and the conviction on the one hand, and the sense that we're dealing with something that is uncomfortably deep and raw, on the other hand. And that's the dynamic of crowning Hashem king. Right? It's not really about whether Hashem's gonna keep creating the world. That's like a tangential issue. And it's not about whether Hashem cares about me. That's a given. It's a Hashem, what's Hashem's relationship with me living in the world, serving him, Torah, mitzvahs, growth, that whole issue. That's what we're dealing with on Rosh Hashanah. Good? Okay. What about the fact that Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment? Now, you've heard that Rosh Hashanah is also a day of judgment. So in Hasidus, do we ignore that it's a day of judgment? No. So... I'm going to mention two elements of the Day of Judgment. One right now, and I think we'll probably have to mention the next one tomorrow because we're running out of time. There, there is something about people by their nature 
that we have a very hard time being really honest, really authentic, really vulnerable. Yes, we agree with that that that's the case? Okay. Generally speaking, we only become honest and vulnerable when we are forced to. That's a general rule. Okay. For instance, let's use this, it's a little cliche, but I'll use it example. Let's say you have a person, they have some kind of addiction problem, right? And very often the cases, there's a strong level of denial that they really have a problem, right? What gets the person to be honest that they have a problem? Right, when, 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 when that's the only option left, right? And the question is like, can you bring that about artificially? Right? Okay, this, this dynamic exists. In Hasidus, there's a, there's a description of a person who is being, who's in court and his life is on the line, whether he lives or dies is the question. And he's already been found guilty. Now, this already being found guilty is very important. If you haven't been found guilty yet, what do you try to do? Convince the judge? What? That you're, that you're innocent. But what if you've already been found guilty? Imagine this, a person's been found guilty and their life is on the line and the judges decide what the punishment, if any, should be and the person's going to deny their guilt. Is that going to persuade the judge to um, be lenient? No. What if he tries to mitigate his guilt? I'm guilty, but it's not as bad as it looks. Sometimes, yeah, depending on the situation. Like legally. What? Like legally mitigating factors sometimes matter. But, 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 so, 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 really depends how those mitigating factors, right? If they're mitigating factors that have to do with the level of his guilt, that's already been decided. You see what I'm saying? Like, oh, yeah. yeah, that's not going to work. Yeah. Okay. What if he stands in front of the judge and says, I'm absolutely guilty. And I'm guilty enough that the question of whether he should live or die is a legitimate question given my level of guilt. Right? So now what is his argument as to why his life should be spared? He's guilty. The judge has already decided he's guilty. You're not going to argue with the judge. The guilt is the gr- such degree that it's a legitimate question whether this person should be executed. What argument should this person use to convince the judge to spare his life? I'm not guilty. It wasn't that bad of a crime. Like, like that, that, that just, that's just going to, that's just going to make the judge guaranteed to put the person dead. What, what kind of argument should the person use? Insanity. What? Insanity. But that's the kind of thing you have to decide. That's the thing that would make the person not guilty. The judge already decided this person is guilty. Remorse. The person, it feels remorse. Right? And the person begs for mercy. The person is, I messed up. I was wrong. Right? I recognize that. And I don't deserve it, but nonetheless, I need and I'm asking and I'm begging for a second chance. That right, person gets to that point. They're very, very open and very, very vulnerable and very, very honest, right? Is that a pleasant place to be? But is that a place, assuming the judge grants them life, is that a place where the person can heal and rebuild their life and become, yeah, okay. So it says like this in Hasidus. On Rosh Hashanah, there's, there's, there's two elements of judgment. I'm going to talk about just one because it relates to this idea of crying champagne. One element of judgment is Hashem looks at how devoted we were the previous year and what does He decide? That we did good enough or we didn't do good enough? We didn't do good enough. What? That we, didn't do good enough. we didn't do good enough. What if you're at Sadiq? Did you do good enough? What if you're like the best Jew ever? Have you done good enough? No. 
When Hashem judges us in Rosh Hashanah, He judges us by a standard so impossibly high that you are guaranteed to be found guilty. You are guaranteed to be found guilty. Why? Because could you as a limited human being ever serve an infinite God in a way that's truly worthy of the dignity God deserves? No. Okay, so you're guilty. Like, you know, it's, I had a friend once. Um, we're not friends anymore because like, he lives on the side of the world. We haven't spoken. I don't know. Maybe we're still friends. We haven't spoken in 10 years. It's hard to know if you're friends with the person you haven't spoken in 10 years. You have to meet up again and see what it's like, right? We haven't spoken in over 10 years. Just his life. Well, no, I haven't. At one point, we were very, very close. Um, and he had one time done work for a school. Like, he was, he's an educator to work for a certain school and like, working on a project, a presentation. And this work was, it was, it was $500 worth of work. Like, that's, what it's, that's what it was worth. And the school, out of appreciation, they paid him $50. That's right, it's worse than like, don't, like, don't pay me. It's a gift, it's a donation, like I, I don't, $50 is insulting. Like, you, it's, not, it's, not, it's not 10% appreciation, it's 100% insult. That's just like, like, I told them to keep their money, no interest in their money. And then last time I'm doing a project for you also. Now, maybe he shouldn't, shouldn't have gone that extreme, but you understand the, the, the... So now, if Hashem is absolute and infinite, whatever, right? I don't care if you're Moshe Rabbeinu. I don't care if you're Mashiach. It doesn't matter. Your service of Hashem is like... It's insulting on some level. And Hashem judges us from that place. Given that Hashem has judged you from that place, you're guaranteed to be found guilty. Now what do you do? Now you just have to ask Hashem. Right? In other words, you have, to, you have to stop hiding behind how good you are. You have to stop hiding behind how much effort you put under. You have to stop trying to justify yourself and put on the right mask. Right? Part of what Chassidah says, the judgment of Rosh Hashanah, is Hashem, the judgment is, is brutally harsh so that the person can be brutally honest. And that's what allows us to commit from a deeper level. In other words, part of Hashem pulling out is now He's judging us all the way back from that deeper level of Him. And on that deeper level, there's nothing you can do to be worthy. Okay, so instead of trying to be worthy, instead of trying to show how, how what you're doing is good and you should accept, you know, people come to Hashem and it's like, I have my whole bag of mitzvahs and I have all my Elul stuff and like, I am, look, I have this whole, look how much good I've done. You have to, like, like you're hiding behind things. Right? You have to just stand there and say, honestly, I want to be connected to you. I want to serve you. I want you to be involved in my life. I want you to care about my Judaism. And even if I, I don't deserve it and there's no... Right? That kind of honesty, that kind of authenticity, you can't hide behind how righteous you are. And so one element of the judgment is to bring a person into that state where they can actually start addressing Hashem about wanting him to be their king. Okay. Does, that, does that make sense? Yeah. Right? And that's actually, that judgment is like a part of the pulling back. As you pull back, you start judging things more and more from what they really are from a core level of your being. And things that seemed important or good enough don't actually seem that way anymore. And so now the person has to face that and be honest with that. At the end of the day, Hashem is not trying to be cruel, but it's about that kind of real honesty. And then Hashem is going to, 
so if a person says, you know, I don't like where we are and I want it to be different and I'm asking you and I'm begging you and I'm pleading you, please, let's, let's make this work. That is the crowning of Hashem King, but you can't do that if you're hiding behind how perfect of an L you had. Does that mean you shouldn't work on yourself an L? doesn't mean that. But you can't carry like, here's my, look at my whole, look at my perfect owl. You must, you must accept me, Hashem. Like that's, that's, that's manipulative. And Hashem pulls to a place where that, there is no way to manipulate him. Okay. Then there's the other element of judgment, which is Hashem judges what we're going to have for the next year, um, which we might talk about tomorrow. Okay. So that's a bit about crowning Hashem king, what that means, the intensity of it. Um, a practical thing I would recommend don't try to make Rosh Hashanah intense try to think about the ideas and pay attention to what the words in the master actually mean and however deeply it moves you that's how deeply it moves you don't like artificially act as if like you're in a but that's so contradicting the whole element <laughs> element two different worlds 